Hello, everyone, and welcome to Professor P podcast. My name is Parsa Pekar. I'm your host, psychotherapist, and professor. And for today, we are starting a new series, which is called Service. And as you know, by listening to our shows, this topic is probably my favorite topic in the entire world. And in Professor P podcast, we are focusing on leadership service and influence as what we do always through our episode we are trying to answer one question and for today we are answering the question of what is the relationship between love and service and for the first part i have chosen the book the prophet by Khalid Gibran, which is one of my favorite books of all time and on the second part of the podcast, I'll have one of my uh, guests, which is Rabbi Friedman, which we're going to hear from him. And I look forward to that. And lastly, I have one of my students on the show who will share their perspective on the subject. At first, I would like to give a little background of the book, The Prophet uh, by Khalil Gebron, which has been a bestseller for such a long time and is one of the classics so the prophet is a philosophical and poetic work written by which he was a Lebanese American poet and philosopher Khalid Gibran, which was originally published in 1923, and it's a collection of 26 poetic essays that explore various aspects of life and offers profound insights and wisdom on topics such as love, marriage, work, freedom, pain, joy and, of course, a spirituality. Each essay is presented as a sermon delivered by a prophet in the book who has lived in the city of Orphelis for 12 years and is about to board a ship that will take him back to his homeland. What I like about this book personally is it's very simple, but at the same time, it's very engaging. I like the language he uses. He also has some illustration inside a book which he has done it himself and I do believe Khalid Gebrans was such an amazing author so it sounds Khalid Gebran was influenced by a blend of both eastern and western philosophies and religion uh, his work often reflects a very wide perspective that he emphasized the interconnectedness of human and the pursuit of a spiritual truth. So what I'm going to do is first I'll be able I'm going to provide some lessons on the book and then I'm going to relate it to our question of what is the relationship between service and love and I'll also provide some practical steps which which we can take away from this wonderful piece. I would say the first lessons that he tries to communicate with the readers. It's very obvious, and it's about self-knowledge and self-discovery. So in this book, Gebron emphasizes the journey of self-discovery as a fundamental aspect of human ex existence, and he encourages individuals to explore their inner thoughts, emotions, and motivations. And the lesson involves the understanding of one's true self, acknowledging strengths and weaknesses, and embracing personal growth. 
Second lesson is about love and relationship. So according to Jebron, which I absolutely love, his idea of love is it should be something that freely given and freely received. And he explores the idea that love is not about position, but about mutual enrichment, which it's so true when we think about our relationships, etc. I do believe that's what we need to think about, that how can we make our partner's life better and not possess them? And the lesson encourages individuals to approach relationships with, of course, openness, compassion, and a willingness to understand and support each, each other. The third point is about freedom and individuality. Uh, Gebron advocates for the celebration of individuality and the pursuit of personal freedom. He suggests that true freedom comes from understanding oneself and expressing one's uniqueness. And the lesson involves finding a balance between personal freedom and responsibilities to society, recognizing that the true liberation is rooted in self Awareness. I love that. That's very important. I do believe always, of course, if we want to change the world, we first need to change ourselves. So everything starts with us as individuals. Fourth, it's about work and purpose, which in his writing, work is portrayed as a means of self-expression and source of joy. And Gibran challenges the notion of work as a mere obligation for survival and encourages individuals to find purpose and fulfillment in their work, which means to align their passions and talents with their chosen vocation. Another lesson is about pain and joy. Gibran acknowledges the inventability of pain and joy in life. He suggests that they're intertwined and that one cannot fully appreciate joy without experiencing pain, which means if you want to apply these lessons is we need to accept and understand the cycling nature of life, which we find strength and wisdom in facing challenges and appreciating moments of joy. The sixth lesson is about time and patience. The book underscores the importance of patience and understanding the nature of time. So Gibran encourages readers to be patient with themselves and of course with others. And the lesson involves recognizing that time has its own rhythm and being patient allows for personal growth, healing, and the unfolding of life's experiences. There is a saying by Solomon that says, for everything under the sun, there is a time. So when we understand that for everything in our life too, there can be a time and purpose, I do believe patience is more possible. The seven is about spirituality. So he presents a universal perspective on spirituality that transcends our differences in a way. And he explores the interconnectedness of humanity and the divine. And this will help us to seek a spiritual connection that goes beyond dogma, fostering a deeper understanding of the spiritual truths that can unite humanity. The eighth is about freedom of thought, and he advocates for intellectual freedom and the courage to question existing beliefs, which I absolutely love these lessons in a specific. I do believe as, as a psychotherapist, something 
we do and I do personally is to really challenge people's limiting beliefs, right? Or the beliefs they just believe uh, blindly. So he promotes the idea that true understanding comes from an open mind. And the lesson, of course, involves cultivating a mindset that is curious, independent, and willing to explore diverse perspectives without fear of judgment. The ninth lesson is about children and parenthood. He offers insight into the roles of parents, emphasizing the importance of allowing children to follow their own paths and destinies, which the lesson involves understanding that children are not positions, but individuals with their own unique qualities. And parents are encouraged to guide and support rather to impose their own desire to their children. Very important. And the tenth and last lesson is about nature and beauty. So in the in this book, nature is used as a metaphor for profound truths, which the prophet, which Gibran uses this character, sees the beauty of the natural world as a reflection of the inner beauty within individuals and in the world. And in here we can appreciate and connect with the beauty of nature, recognize it as a source of inspiration and reflection of the divine. But something in a specific I love about this book is the teachings on service and love, which are profound and carry important lessons when we look at this book, The Prophet. So we're going to take a closer look at what this book conveys on these themes. The first about service, uh, you know, Gibran emphasizes the idea of service to others as a noble and fulfilling aspect of life. He suggests that through service is born, out of a desire to contribute to the well-being of others without expecting anything in return. And of course, the lesson involves cultivating a selfless attitude, recognizing the interconnectedness of human humanity, and finding joy in helping and uplifting others. And the quote that has in the book, which comes to my mind, is... You give but little when you give up your position. It is when you give up yourself that you truly give. So he challenges, in a way, the notion that the material positions are the essence of, are not truly the essence of generosity, which that can be too. We can help with our material position, you know, in the material way. But according to his view, true generosity is a giving of oneself, which is time, compassion, and support. The second is about love. And of course, love is a central theme in the prophet. And Gibran explores various dimensions of love, which includes romantic love, family love, and the love for humanity. And the lesson we can get from this book and his writing is understanding that love is a force that binds individuals and transcends physical and emotional boundaries. Gibran encourages a love that is unconditional, pure, and free from possessiveness. So in, he, in this example, he says, love one another, but make not a bond of, of love. Let it rather be a moving sea between the shores of your souls. So Gibran advocates for a love that allows individuals to grow independently while sharing a deep connection. And he suggests a love should be liberating rather than restrictive. And the third and last lesson, which we originally raised this question, the connection between service and love, 
Gibran intervenes the themes of service and love, suggesting that true service is an expression of love in action. I love this specific lesson. And the lesson involves recognizing the acts of service when motivated by genuine love and compassion have a transformative power, not only for those being served, but also for the one who serves. And he talks about what is it to work with love? It is to weave the cloth with threads drawn from your heart, even as if your beloved were to wear that cloth. So he describes the ideal of working with love, illustrating that when service in, is infused with love, it becomes a meaningful and reaching experience for both the giver and the receiver. I often talk about this when I teach or when I, even with some of my clients who are interested to serve. And I say that something, my life philosophy is that when we serve, we are the happiest, which means not only we make other people happy, but we make ourselves happy. And there is this book called Why Good Things Happen to Good People, which they talk about how service benefit our physical and mental well-being. And there's so many research on how when we do serve, we are happier as individuals. And it, it is as if we found a greater purpose for our life as well. Now, based on the lessons on service and love, which we covered from the prophet, here are some practical steps that individuals can take to incorporate this teaching into their lives, which I highly encourage you to do. First is to cultivate self-awareness, which means we need to spend some time in self-reflection to understand our values, strength, and areas of growth, and recognize that what our motivation and desires are and how we can align them with the principles of love and service. I always believe that our greatest desires are the desires of our creator, which means it's not focused toward ourselves, but toward helping others. So it's important to realize when we are thinking about our desires and goals and motivations, the question is not what cannot do for ourselves, but what can we do for other people? Second is to be able to practice unconditional love. So we need to kind of cultivate a mindset of unconditional love, which comes with practice, of course, and understanding of accepting others without judgment. And one way to do that is to be able to focus on the positive aspects of individuals, which can foster empathy and compassion in your interactions. Third is to serve selflessly, which a practical steps would look like kind of identifying opportunities to serve others selflessly, which can involve volunteering for charity, helping friends or neighbors in need, or simply offering a listening ear to someone going through challenges. Mother Teresa has this saying that in order to help, we don't have to go too far. We can start with our own family and with the people who are we closest with. So I encourage you to do the same, to look around to those who are closest to you, and then you can grow that into your community and that can be grown to the nation. 
Fourth is to express love in actions. So the practical steps, of course, will be to translate that love into actions that can be shown as when we show appreciation, kindness, and support to those who are around us. Performing act of kindness without expecting anything in return, which we always have these questions for our guests. If you could suggest one act of kindness, what would that be? Which we try to motivate you and the listeners and including myself to do something in that week which can inspire us to help others and as we talk about also to make us feel better as individuals fifth is to build meaningful connections so we want to foster deeper connection with others which of course means investing time in building relationships which are based on trust respect and mutual understanding we want to share our experiences, joys, and challenges and present, be present for others in their moments of need. Six can be practicing patience and understanding. So we want to develop patience in our interactions. We want to be understand of different perspectives, life experiences, and for many of us, maybe different cultures. We want to avoid quick judgments and take time to listen and empathize with others' journey. Seven, we want to contribute to our community, as I talk about, right? That means we can engage in activities that contribute to the well-being of your community, uh, you know, supporting the events, or collaborating with others to address shared challenges. If there is a group we can join, I would encourage you to do Anything that's happening in your community, what I would suggest is to be involved in that community to make that positive change. Eight, which I absolutely love this one, is to work with love. So next time you're working, approach it with love and passion. Find joy and fulfillment in your professional work and strive to make a positive impact in your workplace or if you're at school at your university which can be sharing your skills and talents generously and help others to develop that as well. The next point is to encourage independence in relationship. Of course, when we are in relationship, we love to be with our partner and that's great to share moments, create memories. But we also wanna foster relationships that allow for personal growth and independence, which we want to encourage our loved ones to pursue their dreams and aspirations and providing support without imposing expectations. And lastly, another great step can be we connect with the nature. So we spend time to connect with its beauty and what it provides for us. So many lessons. Nature in itself can provide us so many lessons about life. And we can use this time for self-reflection, meditation, or simply to appreciate the wonders of the world around us and allow that to inspire a sense of interconnectedness and love for all living things and others and, of course, ourselves. So these practical steps are inspired by the teachings of love and service in the Prophet by Khalil Gibran and can serve as a guide for us in order to seek it and incorporate these principles into our daily lives. So please stay tuned because we're going to have our guest in the next segment and we're going to answer the question of what is the relationship between love and service? 
Okay, great. So now I have Rabbi Friedman on the show. Rabbi, welcome. Uh, please give a little introduction of yourself and one value that's important to you and why. Um, I'm living in Brooklyn. I'm a Chabad Hasid, emissary of the Rebbe, and I uh, like to teach and share the wisdom of the Torah. Okay, great. What is the preferred kindness? Sharing wisdom. Mm -hmm. It's nice to be charitable and hospitable and you know thoughtful and considerate of your neighbor and all of that. And I'm, I'm assuming most people are. Of course, we can always do more, but we're pretty much decent human beings. But what's missing and what people are desperate for is a little wisdom. So if you have some knowledge and you have some wisdom, share it. It gives people more than just a compliment or a friendly hello. Yeah, I do believe that's very important. Uh, Rabbi, I also isn't that, think... why you, isn't that why you do this program? It's part of it. Yeah, definitely. Um, I also teach at university in here. And that's something I really encourage my students to, uh, to share their knowledge and put it into practice to, you know, whatever they learn. Because I do believe, you know, if you don't apply what you've learned, there's not really a use to it, you know, and that's how maybe you get to wisdom. And of course, experience plays a part. Absolutely. Yes. Uh, so Rabbi, today we're going to, we're talking about the topic of love and service and the relationship that I do believe there is a relationship between love and service. First of all, I want to know your opinion of what this service means to you. Uh, I watched some, you know, some of your lectures where you talk about, of course, serving God and, uh, you know, you talk about love in a marriage setting, you know, that part. But um, first, I'd like to know your opinion about what serving means to you personally. Serving means putting someone else before yourself. If you do what you do because you like it and you enjoy it and you think it's good, you're not serving you're just enjoying. Serving means you step beyond yourself and you do for the other before you do for yourself. So it is, it is, it involves going out of your comfort zone. If you never leave your comfort zone, you're not really connecting to another. You're throwing them favors from a distance, mm -hmm. but you're keeping yourself apart. So service means connecting, and connecting means go out of your comfort zone to meet the needs of another person. And that means putting them first, because for yourself, you wouldn't do this. Mm -hmm. Yes, so um, I have a question on that. Well, first of all, on what you mentioned, uh, Rabbi, what I believe. Um, so I work as a psychotherapist, right? And a lot of people, I do believe, who experience depression, usually they're very self-concerned, right? So they're concerned about themselves all the time. If you look at their thinking, it's always about them. You know, the world is not treating them right or they feel lonely. So there's a lot of thoughts about how miserable they are or, you know, the, the thoughts are always around them. But I do believe people who serve others is as if their world is bigger, right? So the focus, as you said, is of themselves. So there is much more into their world rather just being yourself and your own world, right? Your small world. So they, the more I do believe we serve people, 
the bigger our world gets in general. Right. And the less chance of getting depressed. And that really helps with that as well. There is actually a book, Rabbi, that called uh, Why Good Things Happen to Good People. Because, you know, there is that always thing that people ask, oh, I wonder why bad things happen to good people. And it exactly talks about that. And there are a lot of research that shows when we serve people, uh, we become sometimes even more happier than them. And it helps with our physical health, with our mental health, with us living even longer. You know, it really affects us on so many different levels. I think something you mentioned, Rabbi, which I want to know more, and I'm curious to know your opinion. I understand, you know, when we do serve, uh, as you mentioned, we put others in first, right? And there is a time, I think, uh, that many people, especially I've seen it in my own community, where they just do that so much for others that then they lose themselves in the middle of all that. What is your opinion on that? And, you know, sometimes we can pay attention so much to other people and put them first, but then we forget ourselves in the process and who we are as a person. You know, I wish that were true. If I could do for other people to such a degree that I forget myself completely, <laughs> that would be such a relief. But it doesn't happen. Mm. People give to others, not because they think the others deserve, but because they're hoping to get some big reward. Mm-hmm. And when the reward doesn't come, then they regret the whole thing. I've wasted my time being nice to you. <laughs> actually, a husband in marriage counseling, a husband actually said to me, I have been nice to her for eight years, and what have I got to show for it? Mm-hmm. So, well, what what should you have to show if you're nice to your wife for eight years? A halo Mm. or a happy wife. (laughs) (laughs) Right. The only thing you have to show is a happy wife. But he wasn't doing it to make her happy. Mm -hmm. He was doing it to fulfill his own needs. And that didn't work. I was good to her for nothing. (laughs) What a waste of time. Yes, and I think that's also true about a lot of our relationship. And, you know, Rabbi, I, I want to be very respectful, but I also think in many religions, there is that deal that people have with God, right? Like, I do this for you. Look, I did this nice thing, so that means I have points for heaven, or, you know, I did this, so I'm a better human now, or, you know, I should gain favor from you. I think that happens a lot in religion, the way we relate to God as well. We're we're actually told that there's a reward for every good deed. Mm. So it's like I give you a compliment and then I wait. Well, give (laughs) me a compliment back. (laughs) Yes. So I, I do something for God. I obey his commandments and then I sit and wait. Okay, your turn. (laughs) <laughs> yeah see it's, that it's, again, that's not called serving mm-hmm. called using i'm using god or i'm using my wife or my friends to get what i need 
And I thought I would get it if I was nice to them. Yeah. And I didn't get it. So I wasted all that time. I think it's a way of being people pleaser. We call that, you know, being people pleasing where you being nice to them so you can get something out of them instead of right. just being nice. So it really shouldn't be called people pleasing because you're not trying to please them. <laughs> exactly. To please yourself. Yes, that's true. Rabbi, I have a question. Now we are talking about this topic and uh, about, you know, you were speaking about how we expect God, right? If we do something nice that, okay, there's going to be a reward. I also see it on the other side too. There are a lot of people, and I want to know your opinion on this. And um, it can be a little off topic, but I think somehow related to the love, God being love, is, you know, there is that also mindset that if I do something wrong, God will punish me right away. I think many people do have that, you know, thing in their head. If I do it, I, like God is standing with something, you know, in his hand that he's about to punish me. And deep down, they feel very guilty. Of course, I do believe God gives us conscience that we know what is right and wrong. And, you know, when we do something wrong, we do feel that within ourselves and our uh, conscience. But, you know, I think on the other side, too, do you believe, do you see that in your, you know, maybe consultation with people, too? There is that feeling that, oh, I did something wrong and God is about to get me right away. Yeah. And then if God doesn't get me, oh, so I guess it's not so bad. I'll do it again. Mm. Yeah, we're told, do not serve God for the sake of a reward or to avoid punishment. But you see, there's a difference between conscience and survival instinct. If I avoid sinning because I don't want to go to hell, that's not my conscience. That's my survival instinct. Mm. I don't want to die. I don't want to suffer. That's not my conscience. That's my fear, my self-defense. Conscience means I did something wrong, not something dangerous. And in, in the world today, we are not educated mm -hmm. with the idea of wrong. Everything we do is based on consequence. Don't do this because of that. How about don't do this? It's wrong. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so what's going to happen if I do it? Nothing. Don't do it because it's wrong. Or do it because it's right. Why do you need to be bribed with mm -hmm. a reward before you'll do something right? And why do you have to be threatened with, with punishment before you stop being bad? Bad is bad. Why? Because I'm going to die? No, that, that would be good. <laughs> mm -hmm. No, what you're doing is bad. Yeah, well, what are you going to do about it? See, that, that's not a conscience. That's a person without a conscience. If there's no consequence, then I don't care. Mm -hmm. That's a person without a conscience. Yeah. And go ahead, please. So the emphasis on reward and punishment 
is is way out of proportion. There is reward, obviously, and there is punishment. But you're not punished for every bad thing you do, and you're not rewarded for every good thing you do. There's a judgment. God weighs the, the volume of your goodness and the volume of your evil, collectively. Do you do more good than bad or more bad than good? If you do more good than bad, then you're rewarded. If you do more bad than good, then you're punished. But it's not like you sinned, get a punishment. You did something right, you get rewarded. It's <laughs> like, I'll give you a dollar, oh, I'm taking back the dollar. Yeah. That's that's nuts. So you're you're judged and you're punished or rewarded according to the weight of your of your behavior. It's like a balancing scale. All the good is on one side, all the bad is on the other side. Whichever one is heavier determines whether you deserve punishment or reward. Mm -hmm. So you do one bad thing and you sit wait and wait for the punishment. You may not get a punishment because you've done so much more good. So you still deserve reward. So you can't say, well, if I wasn't punished, then obviously it's not wrong. No, it is wrong. If it was the only thing you did, you would definitely get punished. Mm -hmm. But you did a lot of good too. See, and that's one of the problems with religion. Yeah. I'm a good person. I do a lot of good things, but I sinned. That's it. I'm going to help. There's no justice in that. That's not right. You're very much better than you are bad. And you're going to get punished because you did something bad. Oh, in that case, then I can do bad things and not get punished. Yes. But you have a conscience. So you don't do bad because it's bad. <clears throat> we don't teach that. In in essence, we, we don't teach morality. Hmm. We teach children self-defense. Like, don't lie. Because if you tell lies, people will never believe you when you're telling the truth and you're going to suffer. So it's not the lying that is bad. It's the suffering that it will bring. Mm -hmm. That's an immoral message. Um, share. Share your toys. Share your candy with your friend who came over to visit. Because if you share with him, then when you go to his house, he'll share with you. So you just killed it. It's not a moral message anymore. Now it's good business. Mm -hmm. So this this emphasis on reward and punishment is so it's so egotistical. It is not morality. It's narcissism. This guy said to me, I don't have to be nice to my wife. She's very loyal. I said, what in the world does that mean? Mm -hmm. What does that mean? He said, no, she'll never divorce me. And that's why you shouldn't be nice to her. Hmm. You're so immoral. You're so scheming. Yeah. I think one more thing. Love is not the highest value. Love can be so selfish and so greedy. It can be so toxic. 
to say God is love? Oh, oh, whoa, wait, wait. Don't reduce God to a questionable virtue. <laughs> love can be good, it can be bad. Are you saying God is like that too? Love is very selfish. And it's supposed to be. Love means what you feel. How does that benefit somebody else? I love you. Well, good for you. You're using me for your entertainment. I, I love to be in love. Good for you. I'm happy for you. What does that have to do with me? So love love is, is if you marry for love, you're going to get divorced. Because love is fickle. Emotions, by definition, are fickle. And that's why I, people give me such a hard time with this, and they argue, and they unconditional love is a mental problem. Unconditional love means you have no feelings. Feelings are never unconditional. So if I say, I'm going to love you no matter what, what, what does that mean? It's a fixation, not an emotion. I love you when you're nice. I hate you when you're mean. Those are emotions. No, I, I love you no matter what you do. Then who are you loving? Mustn't be me because I'm not lovable right now. Mm -hmm. So you tell a child, I love you unconditionally. The child is very upset and will try to get you to admit that you don't love him. So he will misbehave. He will make your life miserable until you say, I hate you. Oh, good. Mission accomplished. <laughs> unconditional love is impersonal. I want to love you. So I don't care what you do. I'm going to do my thing. And my thing is to love you. Not only isn't it love, it's not an emotion. It may even come from fear of emotion. I don't want to have to love you and hate you and love you and hate you. I'm just going to love you. Leave me alone. It's an unhealthy relationship. But a mother should say to her child, my I am your mother unconditionally. No matter what you do, I am your mother. And when you're nice, I love you to pieces. And when you're bad, I hate your guts. But I am your mother no matter what. So even when I hate you, I'll take care of you. I'll provide for you. I will mother you. Because mothering is unconditional. Mothering is not an emotion. It's a reality. And the same with God. God is not love and love is not God. When you're nice, God loves you. When you're not nice, he doesn't love you. But he's still your creator. <laughs> He'll always be your creator. And he didn't create you because he loved you. So he will continue to create you even when he doesn't love you. So what should we worship about God that he's so loving? Don't worship love. You worship God because he's real. He's true. And I'm not. Simply because... A couple of years ago, I didn't exist. And in a few years, I'm not going to exist again. So what's real about that? God is real. He always was, and he always will be. So if he says, I want you to behave this way, and you say, but I want to behave the other way, whose opinion are you going to go by? <laughs> That's called serving, putting God before yourself. I want to have an affair. I think it would be great fun but God doesn't like it, okay? So how do you decide? There really shouldn't be a, a contest. I mean, 
How do you compare your own want, which changes every day? You know, a guy has an affair and he cheats on his wife because he just had to. He had to. He couldn't live without it. It was so urgent. It was so... Two days later, she says something nasty and he doesn't even want to look at her anymore. Yeah. Our desires are so shallow. So you're going to do what you want right now, which you probably won't want in a week from now, <laughs> rather than do what God wants, which he always wants, which is a real want. So the difference between us is that God is real and we, we're just temporary. But if we serve him, we behave like him, we think like him, Oh, now we're becoming a little more real, a little more like him. That's great. But love worship is a disease in our society, in the West in general. God is love. Well, then love is God. You're worshiping the love God. Makes lots of problems. I actually had this couple came to me and they said, we are very much in love and we would like to get married. Would you do the wedding for us? I said, you're in love? They said, yeah. I said, then too late. Why do you want to get married? You're getting married because you love each other? Well, you already love each other. What are you getting married for? People marry for love. But they already have the love. So what is the marriage going to do for you? You'll love more? I don't think so. <laughs> Marriage is to make our lives real, more real than love. So to reduce marriage to love, we're in trouble. In fact, reducing sex to love is terrible. Making love, what a, what a horrible expression. You make pancakes, you don't make love. <laughs> and intimacy is much more important than love. Why are you reducing it? So you're making a mockery of intimacy. Uh, Rabbi, I think I have a question. Well, first of all, thank you for sharing that. Um, I do believe, as you mentioned, the more we serve and we become like God, the more real we get. Because I think we originally created in his image and likeness, of course, talks about in Genesis 2. Uh, so I understand that part. Um, but I think something I, I'm curious to know, and that kind of created a conflict in my mind. So we've been talking about how there shouldn't be a consequence because of the morality, right? Like when we teach morality, we shouldn't say, oh, you know, this will. But if we say, for example, um, if you're good, God loves you. And if you're bad, God hates you. In a way, that sounds like a consequence. So like in our mind, if we want to think about God's love, it's okay if I want to God love me. Because again, that happens, I think, in a lot of religions where there is that thinking that, okay, if I'm going to give this much money to charity, to, you know, synagogue, church, whatever, so God can love me. And then, you know, I'm not going to do that so God doesn't hate me. Um, I think that kind of creates that mindset that, okay, uh, if I do good things, God loves me. If I do bad things, God hates me. How would you say that? Or, you know, kind of, you know, what's your thought on that since we've been talking about those 
Yeah, that's good. Good question. Um, love, being loved and not being hated is part of reward and punishment. And we should do God's commandments without thought of reward or punishment. Not that there isn't. Yes, if you're nice, God loves you, but so does everybody else. <laughs> and if you're bad, God hates you like everybody else. That's not the reason. But love is a reaction, a response. So it has to be a response appropriate to who you are and what you're doing. But people say, well, parents, their children unconditionally. Children are important and precious to their parents unconditionally because importance is not an emotion. Emotions can't be the same every day. And it's not an emotion. Love has to be an emotion. So if you're nice, of course, God is going to love you. That's his response to you. It's almost like, how can he not? You're so lovable. How can he not love you? But even with parents, children who do what they do to get their parents' love, not healthy. And as a, as a psychologist, you probably agree, children don't want their parents' love. They want their parents' approval and acceptance. Love, you know, sometimes nice. But if the parents don't approve of the child, love will not be a good substitute. How many how many people do you do you counsel who say, I I, I knew my parents loved me, but I'm miserable. Why? Because love is not enough of a of a basis for our relationship. They loved me because they enjoyed me. Is that a commitment? Is that an attachment? No. So what should be unconditional in any relationship? A fact. You are my brother. That's a fact. And there's nothing I can do about it. And there's nothing you can do about it. So we might as well get along. <laughs> you are my father. You are my mother. You are my God. Well, what are you going to do about that? Because that's not going to change. Facts must be unconditional. Otherwise, it's not a fact. And that's why a man and a woman love each other. That's not a relationship. They're not related. They're not brother. They're not sister. They're not husband. They're not wife. They're not parent. They're not children. Love is not a relationship. Love is the pleasure of a relationship. But if you have only love, might as well eat chocolate. Yeah. I certainly believe that you need more than love, of course, you know, to be in a relationship or, you know, of course, if you want to get married, all of that. But also my take on that, Rabbi, is like, for example, the relationship we have with God, I think maybe the way I view it is differently love, you know, where, you know, they say, because I mean, as you say in West, I think they use love for everything. Like, I love hamburger. I love, you know, it's like a very shallow, it's been become very shallow word. But if you, I think, deeply look at the word itself and the way I look at it, for example, 
in my relationship, the way I see God is it's not about the reward or punishment. But I, I just say to myself, since I love God, I don't want to break his heart, even though, you know, so-called. So, of course, part of the reason I'm going to do the right thing is because of the love I have for him, right? And I think that can also work when we are in a, you know, committed relationship with our partner, that since we love that person, of course, there are more things we need to have, but we're going to, you know, um, we're going to act the way that we want to be treated, you know, treat others as the way you want to be treated. That's a golden rule. And I think something else come to my mind when we were talking about the punishment and the reward system that we've been talking about. You know, Rabbi, something I always talk to everyone is I think the happiest person is the one who goes to bed at night and their conscience is clear. They know they've done their best. You know, they didn't hurt anyone because at the end, we all feel, right? The moment I think we do something wrong, you it's like an alert system inside of you, which you know. So regardless, even of the punishment or reward, I think since we always live in this body, we know what's happening, you know, deep down. And at night is the time, I think, where all those thoughts come to you. And if you are able to just look at yourself and be happy with the person you've been and you had a clear conscience, I think that's the happiest person on earth. And that's the true happiness where you do know, um, you know, you did the right thing and you might not get a response even, but deep down, you know, that was right, you know, and you've done your best. That's, that's particularly important when your life is hard. Hmm. You can suffer terribly because your life is difficult. Nothing is working your way. Yeah. You're, how do you go to sleep with a clear conscience? Because you know you did the right thing. Exactly. Then, then it becomes crucial. Otherwise, your difficulties and your problems are going to destroy you. You won't be able to sleep. You know, the sleep of the innocent. That's why babies are so beautiful when they're sleeping. Mm -hmm. They're innocent. You can see it on their face. But you love God in a sense, not by choice. You really don't have a choice. He is God. I mean, what are you going to do about it? <laughs> He's it's not like your love makes him into God. And if you don't love him, he's not God. And the same with a husband and a wife. If I don't love my wife, she's not my wife. She's going to be my wife forever. You might as well love her because... So you can, you can obey God out of love, which is the best. Mm -hmm. You can obey God out of fear. It'll look the same. On the outside, it looks the same. You don't know whether I'm doing it out of love or out of fear. But I would do the same thing, whether it's love or fear. I could also do it out of, out of obedience. I don't love him. I'm not afraid of him. But he's the boss. He said no, so no. So there can be many motivations. But what's behind it? He's God. Yeah. You talk to your father like that? Don't you love him? It has nothing to do with love. 
You don't talk to a father like that because he's a father. Oh, I'm not afraid of him. <laughs> Has nothing to do with fear. What are the facts before you get to the feelings? So you love God because he is your creator. He is creating you, keeping you alive. Well, what are you going to do about that? Ignore it. So either love him, fear him, obey him. I mean, something. You can't just ignore him. So I don't believe in him. That doesn't help. He's still your God. I think, you know, Rabbi, when I think about it, um, and when we look at the world around us, and even ourselves, right, the way we were created, it's hard to not love God because, you know, we've been given so much blessings that when you truly realize what what we have been given, it becomes hard not to to love or to be able to respect him, you know, in the way that he's supposed to be, you know, uh, be respected as a God. So, well, first of all, Rabbi, I really enjoyed this conversation with you. I appreciate your time. And for our last question, I want to ask you uh, if you could act, uh, suggest one act of kindness, what would that be? Whoever is listening, now that you've heard all of this, share it. You can be generous with your money. You can be generous with your time. You can be generous with your space, which is all good. But to be generous with the truth, with something meaningful, oh, that is the biggest, most important form of generosity. Don't keep wisdom to yourself. It's not nice. Yes. Great, great point. Uh, Rabbi, thank you. It was a pleasure. Let's keep making the world a better place. Amen. Thank you. Now I have one of my former students, Kayla. Welcome. Hi, thank you for having me. Of course. How are you doing? I'm good. I'm good. How are you? Good. Thank you. So, Kayla, if you want to have one value, what would that be? And why is that important to you? I think I would choose the value of community. And I think that has come up for me a lot. It came up in our class a lot. Just that feeling of connection and feeling like you can rely on people for different reasons. I have a two-year-old and I feel like I'm relying on my community so much more than I ever have. So that's what seems really important to me right now. Mm, great value. So actually, maybe our topic today can be connected to that value as well, because we are trying to answer the question, what is the relationship between love and service? Uh, mm -hmm. How do you see that? First of all, what does service mean to you specifically? I think when I think of service, I just think of helping other people. And um, I would think of service in like your community of doing, um, you know, maybe community service for people who are have less than you, but 
I also think of service within your immediate community. And I was raised, I have uh, different family members that are older or have illnesses. And growing up, it was always really important to go visit them and spend time with them and help them. And my mom would always frame it as like, you're doing your active service. You're doing your service for, you know, the year, the week, whatever. So I think it can be in a macro sense and also kind of in a, in a sense right in your community. Right. I usually see service as something we do naturally, and it's like a day-to-day -day activity, right? Which, as your mom mentioned, yeah. too, it's something that we try to uh, have as an attitude in our life. And it doesn't have to be this big thing, you know, that we do. It can be very small steps that we take. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's so true. I thought about that. Even yesterday, I was trying to get my stroller inside of a bookstore, and the door was really hard to open. And uh, for a while, nobody was helping me and I was really struggling. And then someone came and helped me open the door. And just that simple act really made me feel uh, really just looked after and taken care of in a nice way. Right, right. And as you mentioned, I think it also helps to build a community when there is service there as well. Uh, how would you relate that, Kayla, to love, uh, service and love? How do you think they connect? It's a good question. I think I think at the root of almost all service is love, that you need love to be able to, unless you're doing it maybe for performative reasons, most of the time when you're doing an act of service, it's from that feeling of, of love. I think I, when I was thinking about that question, I was thinking to times when I have considered, you know, doing something that's considered a service and it always makes me f kind of reflect on this feeling of oneness in the sense that I feel very connected to another. We're just, we're all humans going through life and we don't have control over where we were born or in what circumstance and what separates me from that other person or just some simple differences. So I think when I think of it that way, um, love is always kind of intertwined into all different acts of service because it's it's kind of like empathy you know you're putting yourself in someone else's shoes and those are all connected yeah and also the way i said is the way we show our love in action is in serving mm -hmm. others and that can be you know if you are in a relationship the way we serve show our love to our spouse or you know our partner mm -hmm. is through service to our family children or you know parents mm -hmm. everyone. Yeah, that's so true. Acts of service, right? That's a love language. And that's definitely my love language to have receiving. <laughs> I love to have them help here and there with different things. I've noticed that. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, they're very connected. Great. And Kayla, I know, you know, before we record, we just had a little talk about you starting your practicum soon. How do you see that applied to your practice as a therapist? I think when I think about service and love together, it just simplifies the whole concept of practicum. I, I get very nervous about like first clinical experience and I've been in school for years, but now I'm actually going to do it. And if I say the wrong thing or the person doesn't trust me or something, but when you simplify it to just two humans sitting in a room together, you know, listening to each other and talking to each other and having love be at the base of it it makes it a lot easier to 
to think about starting that, you know, it's really just two people in the room doing an act of service with someone else, listening, being open and coming from a place of love and not judgment. And I think that that really simplifies it and makes it more palatable. Right. And that feeling is very natural. I remember when I first, you know, wanted to see someone, I had the same feeling, but as time goes by, you feel more confident and I like the way you look at it uh, because when you're in school too, you don't, you know, get paid or anything. So in a way you're just doing it as a volunteer. And I think that's very yeah. much expected. Right. Uh, great. Yeah. So Kayla, for our last question, this is something we ask uh, all our speakers. If you would suggest one act of kindness to listeners, what would that be? I think the, the most, the thing that came to me, the first thing that came was just being present with whoever you're interacting throughout the day, just looking in their eyes, giving them a smile, asking how their day is, whether it's the person making your coffee or your mailman or the people you're just kind of going through your day interacting with, taking an extra step to either make a connection with them, ask them about their self, themselves. And um, I think that really has a ripple effect and it'll affect their day and who they talk to and who they interact with. That is a great act of kindness. Kayla, thank you for being here. Yeah, thank you for having me. Thanks for tuning in, and I look forward to be with you in the next episode. And meanwhile, if you want to stay connected, you can reach me via email at contact at parsapaycar.com. Thank you.